0: I want to begin this morning by saying, first of all, that it is absolutely wonderful to be here. I've looked forward to this meeting for a long, long time, and it's finally here. And I certainly appreciate the congregation, first of all, for asking me to be here, and the goodly number that are here this morning. I don't know much about the dynamics of this congregation. I hope as the week grows on that we can learn about each other. Uh, I don't want you to learn too much about me. But nonetheless, it's great to see each one of you, and already, as I visited with some of you earlier in the service, I found connections that I didn't even dream might exist, including folks that uh, were from the same high school, alumni anyway, as I was back in Missouri. But really, my story starts here in Bakersfield, because this is where I was born about half a century plus ago. And uh, so this is, I suppose, a little bit like coming home. But besides all that, Really, in reality, it's about being in Christ. It's about being Christians together. And so I'm so glad this morning that I can be here and worship with you, study with you, and hopefully from the scriptures, we can glean some things that will be profitable in our spiritual lives. I'll probably stick with basics, most of the, most of the lessons and most of the week. You know, as I travel about around the country and across the world, I find that really, it's the foundational principles that really cause us to be strong in the Lord. And of course, we'll do that in a variety of different ways. But this morning, I want us to focus on a passage or a group of fist verses that I like to go to in Matthew the 16th chapter. I usually begin most of my meetings, which are few, but I begin usually with this particular section. And so if perhaps you've been at one of the opening services of where I preached, you might have heard this lesson. I make no apologies for that. It's a great section because there in Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus is going to elicit from his apostles who he is. And you know, in reality, this morning, we are here because of the same reason that Peter confessed back in the long ago. And that is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see, everything we do really is based religiously upon the authority of Jesus Christ. And so this week, whether we are talking about the worship or whether we are talking about lives that we live, it really is based upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to do this morning a little bit of an expository study. Now, what I like to do in expository studies is just go verse by verse, which is really what an expository study is. And see if we can tease out, glean out from some of the things that uh, Matthew records that will help us in our understanding not only of Jesus' ministry, but also our understanding of who he was and who he is in our lives today. Now to set the context for Matthew chapter 16, we're probably about six months from the trip that Jesus would make to Jerusalem to die for our sins. So Jesus has been with his apostles now for quite some time. He's been with them for probably three years or so. He's gathered them mostly up around the Sea of Galilee. He's called men with very eclectic backgrounds such as fishermen and tax collectors. And now after having trained them for about three years, it's kind of what I would call graduation day. It's kind of where he puts them to a a test. Now not the final test. Not the ultimate test. That, no doubt, would come in many of the apostles' lives after they went out into all the world preaching the gospel. You see, Jesus had called 12 men. One of them, obviously, he said, was a devil. That was Judas Iscariot. But the others, including then, of course, those that would come after, the apostle Paul, would go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And Jesus was going to give that great commission He would say, go and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And of course, after the day of Pentecost, the church was going to be established and then be spread throughout the known world of that time. These were the men that were going to take the gospel from Jerusalem and then, of course, to Samaria, Judea, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. This is really where it starts. These men. We're going to be the ones that he commissioned to go out and really take upon themselves the task of showing others what Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus is really like. Well, of course, Jesus now is going to elicit from them some maturity. He's going to elicit from them their relationship and what they really thought about him. Obviously, Jesus wanted them to know who he was first so that they might then go out and let others know who he was but I want to go back to Matthew chapter 16 and we're going to pick up the text this morning in verse 13 because we find Jesus going to a very interesting place in the land of Palestine now to set the tone again and I don't want to get off too much into peripherals because there's so much here that we could talk about but when you think about Palestine in Jesus day it was divided into three basic sections there was Galilee to the north That's where the Sea of Galilee was. That's where Capernaum was, where Jesus spent most of his time and based his Galilean ministry. It was not a good place religiously because people there were weak. In fact, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. But that was in the very north, and that's where Jesus spent most of his time. However, in the middle, there was the area called Samaria. And Samaria was where almost no Jew would go, uh, you know, willingly, It was a place where people had changed the religion, going all the way back to the captivities of the Old Testament. And so Jesus would go through Samaria at times, but he didn't spend a lot of time in Samaria. There is that one occasion, John the fourth chapter, where Jesus goes through Samaria and he meets the woman at the well. You remember the Samaritan woman where he asks of her a drink and then he shows her that he is truly the living water? Well, that's Samaria. And then down south, You have Judea. Now Judea was really the capital. That's where Jerusalem was. That's where the scribes had their, uh, that's where they had their colleges or their universities. That's where the temple was. That was really the center of good, solid Jewish religious life in that day. Now we might expect that when Jesus is traveling with his apostles, he would spend a lot of time down there around the the temple down there around those strong uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. But he doesn't do that. In fact, in reality, he found a lot of problems with the folks in that area. The religious leaders over and over down there, he called hypocrites. He said the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, they would say one thing but do another. So Jesus didn't spend a tremendous amount of time down there in Judea. He spends most of his time in Galilee. Well, on this occasion, in verse 13, it says, When Jesus had come into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I want you to think about Galilee to the north, if you remember your map, but even go further north. You see, Galilee was kind of an outpost already. But Jesus takes his apostles even further north to a place that is right at the base of what is called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the uttermost furthest north limit of the land of Palestine. You know, when you read the Old Testament, and of course you read about the limits of God's nation, you remember God brought the people into uh, the nation of Canaan or the land of Canaan, and of course they conquered the land. Well, over and over you will find that from Dan, a city called Dan, to Beersheba, way down in the south, were the limits of the nation of Israel. Well, this is getting right up at the area of Dan. In fact, Dan is really the same as Caesarea Philippi. Dan was a place that really was never known for great strength religiously. In fact, you remember that when the kingdom of the Old Testament uh, divided, remember the first king was Saul, and then there was David, and then there was uh, Solomon, and of course the kingdom split, and you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and of course you have then that divided kingdom. In the area of Dan, was where Jeroboam, that wicked ruler, set up one of his idol temples. It was where people were asked to go to worship. And that area had always been, even from time immemorial, a place where the Baal gods and the poor and pagan gods of the Old Testament had been worshipped. Well, that's where Jesus takes his apostles. He takes them right to this area. He doesn't take them down to the religious center where it might be easy to talk about religion. He takes them into a very difficult area where people were in, steeped in paganism. Now again, I don't know that we can make too much of that, but I believe that there's a lesson there that I want to stop and just think about for a moment. You know, today, as we're going to notice in a moment, Jesus asks us, as he asked Peter, about who he is. And you know, Jesus doesn't necessarily ask us to identify with him only in a great assembly such as this. It is out in the real world that we go and we're expected to confess and profess who Jesus is. And sometimes that's in a pagan environment. Sometimes that's a difficult thing to do. And yet we are asked by our Savior to go out and profess who he is, as we'll see in a moment. Well, into Caesarea Philippi, into this place called Dan, was where Jesus marches his little group, his little band, and he begins to quiz them. Notice what he says. He says he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now that's an interesting verse. And if you're following along, notice the term Son of Man. Now the term Son of Man goes really back to the book of Daniel. And it's really a prophetic term for the Messiah. But it focuses upon the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now when we think of Jesus, we often think of him, I think of him as the Son of God, don't we? Well, he was. He was the son of God, but he was also the son of man. In fact, that's the great enigma, how that deity could become humanity. You know, when the angel appeared and uh, spoke to uh, Mary about Jesus coming, he was going to come in the flesh. And the Old Testament spoke of Emmanuel, which means God with us. God was going to take upon himself, or deity was going to take upon himself, the fleshly form of humanity, You know, I love the way John puts it. John says that he literally tabernacled or tented among us. You remember that whole wonderful section in the book of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It starts out demonstrating that Jesus is deity. And then later on it says, but he took upon himself the tent form, the fabric, if you will, the uh, foibles of humanity, and he tented with us. He tented among us. Well, Jesus was truly the Son of Man. He came from the lineage of David. In fact, that's really the whole point of Jesus' uh, lineages in First uh, in Matthew, rather, and in Luke. Jesus was truly the Son of Man. But I think there's something else here that might be important for us to understand, and that is when Jesus says, "Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am?" I don't think he's focusing only or even as much upon his deity. But he's focusing upon what people perceived him as. In other words, you know, Jesus walked around. He walked around in the uh, clothes of his day. He walked around looking like a man. He didn't look like someone from another planet. He looked like an individual just like those around him. In fact, there seems to have been, according to the book of Isaiah, nothing that really made him stand out as being beautiful or being wonderful. He didn't look like a king. He looked like a commoner. And so Jesus, as he walked the streets of Judea, and as he walked the street of Capernaum, and as he spoke with people, there were a lot of opinions about who Jesus was. They knew he was something. They knew he did a lot of interesting things. But now not all of them, in fact, many of them did not believe that he was the Son of God. Many of them did not believe that he was deity. And so Jesus, first of all, begins to ask his own apostles, what do you think about me? Now, you know, in reality, when we go out into the world today, there are so many opinions about who Jesus is. As I travel the world, I find people who have really no real concept of who the biblical Jesus really is. And, you know, sometimes I find people, not very often, but at least two occasions, I've found people who never even heard of Jesus. Now, that's tough. Because you've got to explain to them who this Jesus was. But you know, when you talk to people out in the uh, the world religious environment, you're going to find all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. You know, if you talk to your friends who are Muslim, they're going to say, "Well, Jesus was a great imam. Jesus was a great teacher, but he certainly wasn't the Son of God because God doesn't have a son. God is one." And, of course, if you talk to them, they will deny the deity of Jesus Christ. If you talk to your Jewish friends, much the same answer. They will say, well, you know, Jesus was an incredible rabbi. And for the time that he lived, he was an incredible, uh, had an incredible understanding of the old law. But he certainly wasn't the son of God because the Torah in Deuteronomy 6 says that God is one. And that means he has no son. He has no other parts. He is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And they would quote that. It's called the Shema. They would quote that over and over. So if you talk to the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they would say, He's not the Son of God. No way. In fact, that was the very thing that got Jesus in trouble and led to His crucifixion because the accusation was He makes Himself one with God. They could not put their head around the fact that Jesus was deity incarnate. So you go on, you talk to other friends, you talk to maybe your Buddhist, or you talk to those in the Eastern religion. They will say, well, you know, Jesus was an enlightened one. He was truly a Buddha. He was an enlightened one and had inside knowledge into things that, you know, we don't even understand. But, you know, we don't think that he was the son of God. In fact, in reality, some would say all of us are God's. We all have this little divine God spark within us. And so Jesus was just at a higher echelon. He was enlightened more than the rest of us. If you talk to the atheist, who is your friend, they will say, Jesus, Son of God? There is no God. How can he be the Son of God? And you know, in reality, you're going to find all of these opinions out there in the religious world and in the secular world about who Jesus is. If you talk to the philosopher, he'll say, Jesus was a great moralist. He was one of the people who had the ethics of his day wrapped around his finger. And there's nothing better than the Sermon on the Mount to show our relationship one with another. But not the Son of God. No way. So then, we're in an environment today, much like the apostles were. They were following this man, who was indeed the Son of God. And there were so many opinions about who he was. In fact, notice who the opinions are that come back. So they said, some say you are John the Baptist. I want to just spend a couple of seconds, and I don't want to get tied down in too many of trivia because I love this chapter, and I think there are so many things that we could talk about, but John the Baptist. Now, who was John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was a kinsman, probably a cousin of Jesus, probably somewhere around six months older than Jesus, but John had come preparing the way. John had been the one that Malachi, the Old Testament prophet that closes out the Old Testament, prophesied of. And of course, you remember at the end of the Old Testament, there is this period of silence where God does not send from heaven any direct revelation. And then all of a sudden, about 300, 400 years later, John thunders upon the scene and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was the preparer. He would say, make the path straight. The king is coming. And John said, we need to repent And then he also had baptism that he threw in there as well, not as an afterthought, but as the will of God. And so John was a mighty preacher. He was a man who lived out in the wilderness. He ate grasshoppers and wild honey. He was a man of, of rough clothing, a really, really interesting character, really much in the same sense of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Jeremiah and others. So some thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. Now, how could that be? Well, you see, John the Baptist, just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, had been thrown in prison and was killed. In fact, he, because of his strong preaching against Herod Antipas' illicit relationship, had his head cut off. And so some, even Herod himself, thought that John might have arisen from the dead. Now, how could that happen? Well, think about Jesus and John. Think about their message. John came preaching, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. Repent. Jesus came on the heels of John's death preaching the same thing. And so you could see how that perhaps some would say, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead and now he is preaching the same thing that he preached before. They didn't realize that the Old Testament prophesied that there would be a forerunner, a heralder of Jesus. So some thought he was John the Baptist. Some said he's Elijah. Now, Elijah, again, was that Old Testament fiery prophet. He was the one that called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel and burned the Philistine prophets. And, you know, it was the time of Ahab and Jezebel, a very wicked time in Israel's uh, national history. And yet, again, Elijah, he's the quintessential preacher. Some thought that maybe Jesus was Elijah. There was a theory, and it was based on Malachi, but among the Jews that before the Messiah came elijah would physically and literally come back well of course we learn from matthew 17 the next chapter that jesus shows his apostles after the great transfiguration scene that it was john the baptist who fulfilled the type of elijah and that elijah was not literally coming back but some thought this was elijah and then some thought it was jeremiah Jeremiah also was thought to, among tradition, to come back and restore things in the temple and, and get things ready for the Messiah. So you see, there was a little bit of a messianic hope. There was a little bit of a hopeful uh, you know, thing for the Messiah to come and, and maybe, you know, get the kingdom going. But they misunderstood it. But I want to notice now as we move on quickly, Jesus now, he ignores really all of those opinions. He ignores all of that word that was floating around about who he was in his humanity as the son of man. But he says in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? You know, that question in the Greek is emphatic. In other words, it is almost as if Jesus is pointing his finger and saying, who do you say that I am? And really, when we think about that question, it's incredible because what Jesus is saying is, what is your conviction about me? You know, it really doesn't matter today in the world. Oh, it matters, but I think you'll understand my point. What others think of Jesus? There will always be those who harbor unbelief. There will always be those who really don't have time for religion or don't have time for God. But you know, in reality, as we sit here this morning and as we think about being Christians, who is it that we really think Jesus is? You know, Pilate, as Jesus stood before him, was really faced with that question. Here is this man that they are saying, he's a traitor. He's one that doesn't love Caesar. He's one that should be crucified. And you know, Pilate had to make a decision about who Jesus was. I think Pilate understood that Jesus was no ordinary man. But what did Pilate do? He washed his hands, really, of that decision. He tried to get the blood of Jesus off of his hands by a ceremonial bath of his hands, and he turned Jesus over to the mobs. You see, Pilate was faced with who Jesus was, and he made the wrong decision. You know, today, who is Jesus to us? Is Jesus no more than, for our religious friends, a good moral, ethical teacher? Is he no more than one who just had a lot of great insights into the nature of people? Is he no more than one who maybe came and, yes, even did miracles, but just did a lot of good stuff for people? Who is Jesus? Well, you know, if Jesus is the Son of God, then as we're going to to notice, that has ramifications. That has implications for our own religious lives because if Jesus is the Son of God, then that means he has authority. You know, Jesus claimed that in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. In fact, that was the very basis of the Great Commission. And if Jesus has all authority, then that means he has authority over us. And that means that our hearts must have Jesus on its throne. You know, we all have a throne in our hearts. Not a literal chair. But we have a throne in our hearts. We have a place where something of importance sits. We have an ultimate something that sits there. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's our spouse. Maybe it's our kids. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's our, 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 you know, our hobbies. Whatever the case is, we have a throne in our hearts. And you know what Jesus says? Basically, Jesus says, I will not share that throne with anybody. I will not sit on that throne and co-rule your life. You are either mine totally, or you're not mine at all. And I think that's a very sobering thought because how often do I want on on that throat of my heart to say, Jesus, I want you to scoot over just a little bit. And I want to put something else here to sit by you. Have you ever been at a big Thanksgiving dinner and you know, there's just not quite enough chairs. And so what you do is maybe you'll take two kids and you'll put them on one chair, or maybe even worse, you'll take two adults and put them on one chair. And they're both hanging off. And it's not pretty for either one. You see, it's hard to share. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do it. I want to be on the throne of your life. I am the Son of God. And if I am, then that demands that we put Him first. Now, that doesn't mean we stop doing everything else. That doesn't mean that we go sit in a corner and contemplate our navels. That doesn't mean that we just go into a mountain somewhere and pray without ceasing. No, it means that we filter everything... Through the lens of Jesus. How can we glorify Jesus in our job? How can we glorify Jesus in our schooling? How can we glorify Jesus in the choosing of a career? It's not wrong to have any of those things. But how can we glorify Jesus? And what we need to be teaching our young people is choose the career that Jesus wants. Choose choose the career that you want too to some degree. But make for sure that Jesus can be exalted by your career. You know, we tell our kids, and I'm off at a different subject now. i got to get back to my topic. But we tell our kids, you can have everything. Well, first of all, no, you can't. You can't have everything. It's a pipe dream. But if we can train our kids and encourage them to choose things that will be uh, in keeping and most glorifying to Christ, they can have this world as it were and heaven too. Now, don't take that too far because you can't have everything. But... We need to be teaching our kids and our families and ourselves for that matter that we filter everything through how does this affect my spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, who am I? And he points to his disciples and says, who am I? Then we see the really the onus is upon us. Well, how do the apostles answer? Simon Peter answered and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, I don't know. If Peter truly understood, at this moment, what he said. I'm not sure that Peter understood a lot of things that he said during his during Jesus' personal ministry. Now, after the cross, after Pentecost, I think Peter really woke up. In fact, if you read some of the events of Peter's life before Pentecost, and then you read, for example, the letters of Peter later on as an old man, it's like night and day. Peter grows up, he matures. But at this point, Peter says, You are the Christ, <clears throat> the Son of of the living God. Now, you know, Peter hit the nail on the head. He absolutely nailed it. He says the exact right thing. Now, how does he do that? Well, I think Peter was a person a lot like us. I think Peter knew the truth. I think he had seen the truth demonstrated in Jesus' life. I think he had even been there and seen the miracles. In fact, we know he did because he was one of what we call the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He was the one that would sometimes get information, as it were, or see things that none of the other apostles saw. In fact, again, I mentioned the the transfiguration. The next chapter, it's Peter, James, and John who go probably up into Mount Hermon and see the fleshly side of Jesus sort of stripped away and the Shekinah glory of God revealed through Jesus. But how does Peter get this thing so right? Well, I think he, again, is like us. He has some firm foundation but now Peter struggled too, didn't he? You know, when I think of Peter, I think a lot of this man who is uh, a little bit maybe ADD. He's a little bit hard to sort of pin down. He's always everywhere. You know, he's the guy that's kind of dogging Jesus. And if Jesus stops, he's running into him. He's the guy that's always asking Jesus these, these questions. He's the guy that always wants to do right. But when push comes to sur- shove, He struggles. I think, you know, one of the situations that really portray the true Peter is out there on the Lake of Galilee. You remember when Jesus was out there walking on the water? They had been rolling all night in a storm. The apostles were in this little boat. They were about to be drowned. And Jesus comes walking on the water. And, of course, initially they're terrified. They think it's a phantom. They think it's, you know, this ghost and finally, Jesus speaks to them, and Peter recognizes the voice of Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, hadn't he come to you on the water? Now, Jesus says, okay, come. I don't know if Peter then said, oh, no, I made a, might have made a mistake. But he steps out on the water to go to Jesus, doesn't he? And I think the interesting thing there about that is he actually walks on the water. He walks on the water for, I don't know, a yard, two yards. But he began to look around, and he began to lose his faith, I suppose, but he began to sink and Jesus saves him. Well, that's the Peter that we think about. We think about Peter who is so willing, as he says, Jesus, I will go to prison and to death with you. But then he's the one that Jesus says, listen, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And he did. And of course, Peter then will weep bitterly over that. He's kind of up and down, ADD, you know, sort of a bipolar sort of individual. But on this occasion... Peter gets it dead right. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me analyze that with you for a moment, and obviously I can see that I'm not going to get through every verse here. But let's notice what Jesus, who Jesus is when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, you are the Christ. Now, what does the term Christ mean? Well, the term Christ is the Greek word Christos. It's the same equivalent as the Hebrew word Messiah. And of course, the Messiah in the Old Testament was a concept that was so important. You are the Christ. It means literally the anointed one. In the Old Testament, you remember there were classes of individuals that were anointed. There were the priests who were anointed literally with olive oil over their heads to signify their their authority and their office, there were the kings who were literally anointed, such as David and and others, anointed by Samuel, uh, that literally signified their authority. And then, of course, there was the prophets. And, of course, the old prophets were anointed as well. Well, you know, Jesus comes, and he is the Messiah. He is the quintessential prophet, priest, and king. And, of course, we understand that from the New Testament. You know, Jesus is our Messiah. He is our Christ. He is our anointed one. He is the prophet. He is the final prophet. In fact, in Hebrews 1.1, it says that God, who in various times and in various ways spoke in the past, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. It is through Jesus that we receive the message of God. Jesus is also the King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority, Jesus says, is given to me. And he is also, of course, the priest, the high priest that stands between us and God. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy. He says there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And so you see, the whole messianic concept, the whole idea of Jesus being the Messiah or the uh, Savior of the world is so important because it is through Jesus, it is through the Christos, the Christ That we have the message of God. That we have the mediation of God. And that we have the monarch that God has sent us to rule over our lives. So Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, in verse 17, Jesus answered and says unto him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Now I'm going to stop right there because this evening I'm going to pick this up and we're going to look at the rest of this passage. You know, sometimes preachers always wonder, what am I going to preach next? Well, if you run out of material or you run out of time at the first part, you just finish it that night. But there are some very interesting things. you are going to come back this evening that that are going to be taught by Jesus as he looks at Peter. And he says, Peter, you have confessed me as the Son of God. Now, what does that really mean? What am I going to do with that? Now, that's an important thing because in this meeting, we're going to focus... On what Jesus does because he is the son of God. That authority gives him the right, as we're going to notice, to build a church. That authority gives him the right to have a church bear his name. That authority gives him the right to be able to lay down the laws and the doctrines of that church. Some things that we'll talk about this week. So this evening, when we come back, we're going to look at what Peter says and the contrast then that Jesus makes when he says, Peter, you are the son of John, but because I'm the son of God, here's what I'm going to do. Well, those are the thoughts this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you know, in reality, the question that we asked earlier and the question that Jesus poignantly asked the apostles is as valid today as ever. Who do we think that Jesus is? It makes all the difference. If we think him to be, the Son of God, as Peter knew him to be, then it's going to demand some action on our part. It's going to demand some obedience. It's going to demand some allegiance, some loyalty on our part. Who do we think that Jesus is? This week we'll talk a little bit about how we get into Christ, but let me give you a thumbnail sketch of how we show Jesus and demonstrate our faith and obedience about who Jesus is. First of all, we hear the message. We hear the gospel. We hear the report of Jesus through the scriptures. We believe it. Peter did that. Peter believed Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. We change our life. We repent of our sins. Jesus had said, repent for the kingdom is near. And we confess him and profess him as the Son of God, just like Peter did. And then we have our sins washed away in the waters of baptism. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by The Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.